Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. The coronavirus pandemic of the past year prompted many across the United States to discover and rediscover the joys of being outdoors in nature. Across the country, there were at times record numbers of visitors to our national parks, national forests, Bureau of Land Management lands, and state parklands. You might call it a land rush, and one that saw quite a number of people not heading out in Conestoga wagons, but rather investing in recreational vehicles and boats for their outdoor experiences. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Until just recently, the COVID pandemic kept me close to home. But with vaccinations delivered and the spread of COVID seemingly on decline, I've been able to venture out recently into the parks. Over a period of four weeks, from mid-April into mid-May, I visited Capitol Reef and Grand Canyon National Parks and even spent four days sea kayaking at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area in Utah. Joining me for that paddling adventure was Joe Macholsky, whose close friendship dates back more than five decades, beginning with two youngsters growing up in central New Jersey. From that starting point, we have continually sought the outdoors through organized scouting, skiing, hiking, and rafting. Together, we visited Algonquin Provincial Park in Canada and Yellowstone, hiked into the Sawtooth Wilderness, and rafted the Middle Fork of the Salmon. While Joe went into a recreation career with the U.S. Forest Service, I was able to stay close to the outdoors as a journalist. On the second day of our Lake Powell journey, we paused to look back over our experiences in the outdoors and speculate how land management agencies will manage the resources under the anticipated crush of visitation in the years ahead. We'll join that conversation after a short break. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org.
So Joe, we've been spending the past 50 years or so outdoors. Yellowstone, we've gone to the Grand Canyon, we've gone into the Sawtooth NRA, we're down here in Glen Canyon. Don't forget the middle fork of the oh, salmon. No, not the middle fork of the salmon. Twice. Why do we do this? For the fun, for the adventure. Yeah, yeah. For the camaraderie. Camaraderie. All those things that um, not everybody has the good fortune to be able to experience. Oh man, we have been so fortunate to have had all those experiences and to continue to want to have experiences together that uh, involve Mother Nature and unique places and give a fullness to life. Have you been able to sense, I mean, you had your career with the Forest Service and you've seen a lot in recreation. Have you been able to see a change in how Americans recreate over the past 50 years? I mean, you and I, we grew up in New Jersey, and for us a great adventure was hiking a section of the Appalachian Trail. That's right. Yeah, I'm afraid uh, a lot more younger people seem to be uh, entertained by electronics and video games. And uh, I know they have the, a place, but uh, I don't know. It seems to me personally that... Uh, there's no greater entertainment than what Mother Earth can provide if you're willing to make the effort. Okay, Boomer, um, we're out here someplace called Forgotten Canyon in Glen Canyon NRA, and I've got my digital recorder, I've got my camcorder. We've got electronics. Right, but you're using them to enhance more or less wilderness experience and to record it for the benefit of others that they may be inspired to come out and enjoy Mother Nature in whatever way she's available to them. Yeah, yeah. And we saw a lot of that in the past year with COVID. Frankly, I think it was a, a surprising number of people headed outdoors and a, and a great majority of them probably to the national parks. Yes, absolutely, and to the national forest that I'm familiar with. Uh, up in Idaho, uh, we had record numbers of visitors in central Idaho, where I live, that uh, um, we've had to make adjustments, or the forest, I should say, has had to make adjustments to some regulations to keep it from being loved to death. And what adjustments did they make? Well, they've reduced the uh, length of stay in campgrounds from 14 days to 10 days to allow more people to have an opportunity to enjoy the special places like Redfish Lake and the Sawtooths. And but you're still putting bodies in the, the campsites. Yes. I yes. mean, whether it's love to death by seven-day clumps or 14-day clumps, it's the same at the end of the day, isn't it? Well, from a land impact standpoint, it probably is, but uh, by reducing the length of stay, more people and families have an opportunity to enjoy part of it. So... We saw record numbers in 2020, maybe record numbers. I mean, some parks were closed for a while, but you know, Yellowstone was still up there with well over 3 million people and Grand Teton and Grand Canyon and Yosemite, the crown jewels. 
how can we serve these people without destroying the resource? Well, in my mind, that's, that's the greatest question. How do we offer these opportunities as public land managers and preserve them for their kids and future generations? And it's, it's a quandary that uh, I don't know that we've developed all the answers yet, or any of the answers for that matter. Just by having public lands, I think uh, we've offered tremendous opportunities to the American public to uh, enjoy the great outdoors and hopefully earn a respect or learn a respect to the public lands that uh, they'll pass on to their kids so uh, their kids can enjoy it. Well, that, that's going to be interesting because uh, in, in talking to a number of superintendents across the park system, um, they received a lot of visitation last year who, from people who might have been first-timers in the national parks and weren't exactly sure how to behave. And um, it, it was a surprise. I mean, social trails and, and using restrooms, quote-unquote, out in nature where they shouldn't have instead of heading back to the vault toilet or whatnot. And so... Yeah, there's a, a measure of education that needs to go along with that. You know, it it's really interesting. Um, you know, I've loved national parks all my life, and I've you know the National Parks Traveler is going on 16 years old, and you develop these expectations, I guess, for what you want out of your park experience. And, and we're down here at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, you know, sea kayaking, muscle-powered recreation um, on Lake Powell. We've seen one other kayak, and everybody else has been in a powerboat or in a houseboat. We did see a, a motor-powered sailboat, I believe, the other night. And at the end of the day, that's great because they're out enjoying nature in the way that's comfortable to them. Not everybody has to be a kayaker. Not everybody has to be a powerboater. And, and feeling their way and getting that experience and trying different things. I, I think that's the message that somehow we have, to, we have to pass on, that, you know, not all these different varieties of recreation are bad, but at the same time, you know, maybe you want to sample the different types of recreation. Oh, yeah, I, I agree totally. Whatever form of recreation that you enjoy, as long as you don't uh, leave a negative impact for the next user of uh, where you've enjoyed it, in my mind, has uh, every right to be there and to share it with all those that they uh, befriend and love and uh, hopefully develop a respect and show that respect to these other folks so that they will uh, carry it on as they recreate on, on public lands. And that's really going to be interesting because showing respect you know, there are places we, we go, Yellowstone, Shoshone Lake, Lewis Lake, um, Yellowstone Lake, the big lake, where it's primarily muscle-powered and you don't want to see boats. I mean, they do use power boats on on um, Lewis Lake, but it's it's uh, might be just a 10-horsepower or 20-horsepower. I, I forget exactly what the limitation is. But there are places that I, I think should be restricted to what you can do on them. And as far as respect... You know, it's kind of interesting. There has been in, in recent years a push for mountain bikers to gain more access in the national parks, on trails specifically. And we saw this in 20, 2019, I think it was, when Interior Secretary Bernhardt um, told the Park Service to allow 
e-bikes to go where hikers would go, um, if it was a paved trail or whatnot. And there was a big pushback from hikers about, we don't want these e-bikes on here because they go faster than us and whatnot. And you had a lot of e-bike users saying, hey, you know, I used to do what you do. My knees are shot, my hips are shot. This allows me to get outdoors. And now I'm seeing stories about mountain bikers who have always had a conflict with hikers over trail access, saying we don't want e-bikes to go on our trails. I don't know how you bargain that. I mean, how do you decide this is a one-use trail, this is a multi-use trail, and what those multi-uses are? That's a really good question, and uh, I don't have the answer to that. All I can tell you is uh, we've had had that controversy years ago in central Idaho where I, I used to work, where especially uh, between backcountry and cross-country skiers and snowmobilers, and I can tell you that uh, we had a working group uh, of skiers and snowmobilers uh, brought together by um, some really diligent federal employees that wanted to uh, find a happy medium for these users to have their place to experience their experience, their recreation experience, without conflict. And it took a long time to build the trust between the two user groups to where they could say, oh, I understand why you like motorized and I understand why you like non-motorized, for example. And in our part of the world that I'm familiar with in Idaho, central Idaho, the compromise that was brought together by these two different user groups uh, has worked very well and continues to work well and I hope that can be a model for these other new uses like e-bikes that uh, and new whatever new technology comes up for for recreation to allow folks to enjoy their particular form favorite form of recreation without being impacted by another group in a negative fashion yeah yeah and that's that's a good point because we're getting up there and we've seen a lot of changes in how people recreate out there and I can't even imagine what we're going to see in the future and so how do you bring them into say a national park setting and make them this is proper this is not violating the National Park Service Organic Act this is not infringing on other users it you know I'd hate to be a park manager or a forest manager these days because it's got to be incredibly hard. It is very difficult. I don't know if people understand the pressure that uh, public land managers are under these days to balance all the different demands of the public lands, whether it's a national park or the national forest, the BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, all the public land managers have got to try to find the balance. And it's it's why uh, public land managers, I think, deserve a lot more respect than, than many people give them because they're trying to balance all these uses. And in a lot of places, they're, they're uh, balancing extractive uses like uh, oil and gas drilling and logging and whatnot. 
with recreation and it is a very delicate balance very hard to come up with one that uh, people can all buy off on and say all right you can do your thing i can do my thing and uh, you can make a living off the public lands i can make a living say as an outfitter and guide by having all these public lands that are still in a natural state with uh, um, running white water for rafters and hunting and fishing for uh, game. It, it, it's an incredibly delicate balance that uh, is going to require a lot of people to have a bigger, wider scope of understanding than I think many people have at this point. And hopefully that model that I mentioned of our in central Idaho, the cross-country skiers and the snowmobilers can be used by future generations to come to accommodations where people still can enjoy their particular form of recreation without negative impacts to others. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's going to be interesting going forward. But we've certainly enjoyed the past 50 years of getting out here together. And, we sure uh, have. And uh, I think it's just about time to cook dinner. Yes, I think so. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Did you know our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, serves members nationwide and in the American territories? They are part of a cooperative credit union network with 5,600 shared branches and 56,000 totally free ATMs nationwide. Many of the ATMs are located in common places like 7-Elevens, gas stations, and CVS. Need to perform an in-person transaction? Not to worry. Use the locator tool on their homepage, interiorfcu.org, to find the closest branch to you. Go in, let the teller know that you're a member of Interior Federal Credit Union, and they can look up your account to help you with your questions. It's simple, easy, and convenient. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Hi, 
this is Lynn Riddick, and I am a podcast writer and producer for National Parks Traveler. And when I get out into a national park or a protected area or a national historical site, I have my handy digital recorder. And a lot of times people will ask me, what is that that you've got in your hands? Because, you know, I am known for pulling people aside and doing a quick interview on the spot. And a lot of people just kind of wonder what that, uh, you know, digital recorder is that I'm holding. And um, then that leads to a conversation, of course, about what the traveler is. And uh, it's such a unique organization, and I'm so proud to be doing work for it. And Kurt Rebenshek, the founder and the editor-in-chief, um, is here to talk with me a little bit about what the traveler is, why it's unique, why it's important, and why it's so fulfilling to do this kind of work. So, hi, Kurt. Hey, Lynn. Thanks for uh, joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Well, tell us a little bit about how you started with The Traveler. You know, um, I've always loved national parks. I mean, growing up in New Jersey, we used to get this yellow magazine in the mail every month. And, um, of course, that yellow magazine was uh, National Geographic. And um, there was a story in there about this guy who would shovel snow off the roofs of buildings in the winter to keep them from collapsing. And it was in this place called Yellowstone. And, you know, I was a young boy, I don't know, maybe nine or 10. And that was my first real introduction to to national parks. I mean, Yellowstone National Park. And uh, on family vacations, we went down to Shenandoah or Great Smoky Mountains and uh, Acadia National Park. And so I just kind of fell in love with being in a national park and outdoors and whatnot. And um, that's always kind of hung with me. And um, when I got my journalism degree, I always seemed to be able to work in stories about nature and whatnot, uh, the wild wildlife and public lands. And um, so when I became a freelance writer, I started pitching those stories. And to do that, I need to come up with story ideas. And so I just thought a blog, and this was back in the uh, early 2000s um, when blogs were gaining popularity. And so I thought if I would create a blog, it would force me to come up with ideas that I could pitch to uh, mainstream media. Um, national magazines and whatnot. And um, it just kind of led into a bunch of interesting uh, situations. I, I wrote that infamous um, book, National Parks for Dummies, and that uh, really gave me a broader um, Yeah, experience. I bought a copy of that. Yeah, I don't think you can find one now. They were so popular, they were sold out. But But anyway, you know, my journalism career was launched by the Associated Press. And so I've always been kind of a news junkie in addition to really loving the outdoors and public lands and um, issues that go along with those. And so back in the early 2000s, it just seemed natural to create a, a, a website, a web magazine that looks at these issues because there, there are so many issues across the national park system that people aren't aware of. And, you know, today, 15 years, almost 16 years later, National Parks Traveler is the only news organization that focuses entirely on national parks and protected areas. And as a result of that, readers can find both features that delve deeply into an individual park or an issue confronting the park service, as well as smaller stories that other media overlook. I mean, for instance, we just uh, ran a story about a $10,000 reward being offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of whoever has been setting fires in Everglades National Park. We run stories about proposed fee increases for the national parks. 
Um, we do book reviews and a story the other day on the need for climbers to obtain permits at Yosemite National Park if they're doing an overnight climb. And so this is a type of content that um, you're not going to typically find anywhere else. And uh, the traveler is that one location you can go to and find a lot of this content spanning the national park system. I think that's interesting. And what I try to explain to people, it's the traveler is not really the place to go when you want to find out the best, you know, restaurant in a lodge or the best uh, place to stay. Although there is plenty of that kind of information. So it's not really a travel log or travel advice. It, it really delves into issues, like the important issues that are part of what makes a park survive and thrive. And, and uh, you know, some of the issues are political. A lot of things dealing with budgets and access. And there are usually not a lot of easy answers. No, there's not. And, and you're exactly right. I mean... The, the name National Parks Traveler might lead people to believe that it's just a, a travelogue about um, stories on how to experience the national parks or pretty pictures about the national parks. And, and we, try, we do try to add some of that content in because people, when they're surfing the Internet, they're not searching for um, the maintenance backlog in national parks. They're not searching for um, pollution problems in the national parks. They're, they're looking for... How can I enjoy my Yellowstone National Park vacation? Where's a really cool place to go in Great Smoky Mountains National Park? And if we can provide that content, and hopefully the readers will find it, and then they'll stick around to learn about some of the issues that are confronting the parks and the park service, because they, they really are a lot of crucial issues that, that the public should be aware of. And, and to try and engage the readership, you know, from time to time, we'll do what, what I call Reader, Reader Participation Day, where we'll throw out a question, whether, you know, what's your favorite lodge in the national park system or uh, what's your favorite national seashore? You know, the other week we, we put out one that was a little bit more controversial. My wife and I had gone down to Capitol Reef National Park back in April and stayed in the campground there at Fruta, um, just a beautiful place, you know, surrounded by the orchards there. But there are, I think, I don't know, over 100 campsites there. And each campsite has its own fire ring. And at nighttime, everybody's lighting their fires. And so you've got this blanket of smoke that kind of hangs over the campground, the entire campground. And if you're allergic to the smoke or you just don't like the smoke, it's a real issue. So we asked, we asked our readers to engage in a conversation, such as um, whether campfire smoke is an issue for them. And um, other topics might be uh, the pros and cons of recreation.gov, the uh, master reservation portal to the national park system and other public lands that uh, is very... Well, I, I just made, um, yeah, I just made a reservation through that yesterday. I got a pass because I went to uh, Fort McHenry National Monument and National Shrine yesterday. So, yeah, so I'm familiar with that uh, website. What it, was uh, What was the article all about? Well, it's very controversial because um, more and more campgrounds allow you to reserve a campsite on recreation.gov. But there's a limited number of campgrounds and there are millions of people who want a campsite. And so people will, you know, get ready just at the time that the campsite um, reservation window opens. And within three seconds, everything is sold out and people are just really frustrated over it. Um, and so we talk about that and, and talk about lodgings in the national park system. But basically, we offer readers an opportunity to have conversations about, you know, different aspects of 
what they encounter in the national parks. Well, one story you did recently, which was really eye-opening, was the story about the Camp Ridley sea turtles in um, Padre Island National Seashore. And of course, turtles are kind of foremost in our mind because I live in Texas and we had that big Texas freeze in January and hundreds, if not thousands of sea turtles were cold stunned and many, many of them wind, uh, wound up dead because the, of the extreme cold. And you had volunteers going down to the National Seashore and pulling out turtles and, and stacking them up in warehouses to try to save them. And then to hear that there are programs in the park that are helping to promote these uh, threatened species that are losing funding was really just a sort of a shock when I read your story. Talk a little bit about that. You know, there's a general misconception, it seems, that the national parks are in fine shape and don't need a lot of help or, or don't generate a lot of news. And the Kemp's Ridley sea turtle story was one very clear example of what the general public should be aware of. This study came out. It was generated by the uh, Park Service Regional Office in Denver. It came out last summer, basically saying that you know we've got to we've got to get better control over this program because it's it's kind of a separate division down there at Padre Island, and it raised some questions, um, pro and con. And there was just a lot of secrecy around this. I mean, the Park Service will not discuss this report with me, and I've tried several times, and. Um, you know, it's been a very popular program. The, um, the director, Dr. Donna Shaver, has raised it to international prominence for the work that she's done there. Um, the Park Service had recruited her back in the early, the early 2000s to create this program. And she's done a wonderful job with it. And one of the ironic things, and I wish, I wish the Park Service would talk to me about this, but one of the ironic things is the study said that the, the program is not financially viable for the long run. And yet for 20 years, Dr. Shaver has been raising money, millions of dollars, to keep her program going. And so if with that kind of track record to, to come back and say, well, it's not financially viable, it, it just raises questions on, on how that determination was made. And uh, unfortunately, the Park Service won't talk, talk to me about it. But there are, there are many issues across the park system, whether it's the maintenance backlog. You know, back in 2018, we did a, a months-long survey or study, series of stories on um, the maintenance backlog and the problems it was creating for visitors to the national parks, for the park service itself, and the incredible cost that it would take to, to fix um, this maintenance backlog, to wipe it out. There are other series that we're working on, invasive species in the national park system. It's an incredible problem that, that I think could dwarf the cost of the maintenance backlog. There's the underfunding of the National Park Service. There's overcrowding in the parks. You know, the issues that deserve coverage to keep the general public informed, both on what they might encounter on vacations and why they should pressure their congressional delegations to support the Park Service with adequate funding and resources, just go on and on and on. Every day, there, there are new stories that crop up, Lynn. And you know, nobody, it's funny because... I was just going to say that no other media organization covers them to the extent that we do on a daily basis, day in, day out, year in, year out. You wouldn't normally think of uh, investigative journalism 
to be needed in covering the national parks. But it is, and that's exactly what you are doing, what you're talking about now. There's so many issues that really need to be investigated, brought forward, and have people respond in kind to other legislators or whoever um, they need to reach out to to make some changes. There, there really are, and, and it's not just necessarily investigative journalism. I mean, just good, solid journalism. I mean, you look at the national park system, you know, stretches from coast to coast, goes into the the Pacific, down into the Caribbean. There are constant battles going on that touch the national parks, whether it's grazing or hunting or mining, pipeline rights of ways, wildlife issues, climate change. The national parks can play an incredible role in, in trying to slow the impacts of climate change. And at the same time, you know, there are some instances where they won't be able to slow the impacts. And so what is the, what are individual parks doing to, to mitigate the impacts of climate change? Um, there's so many interesting stories. And, you know, one, one thing that, um, that frustrates me is in talking about the national parks, so often organizations point, well, we have to support the national parks because they're economic engines. And, and yes, they, they do bring in lots of money to surrounding communities, but I don't think we can put that sort of dollar figure on the national parks and why we should be protecting them. I mean, these are incredible places. The, the scenery, the vistas, the wildlife, the culture, the history that they protect and they preserve, those are the reasons why we should be promoting national parks and investing in national parks. And the traveler really has the luxury of talking to the scientists, the researchers, the artists, the park rangers, and the park superintendents that can tell the story and really delve into a story. You know, I, I, I've had the privilege of talking to so many really interesting scientists, researchers uh, about what they're doing. And, um, you know, like, for example, I think of the efforts to bring back species or to protect the ones that are threatened or endangered. And, you know, I was able to talk to a researcher who has looked at bald eagle reproduction in Chesapeake Bay area, national park lands around the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, he had good results to report that um, eagles are reproducing in greater numbers in these more protected areas of the national park. Another scientist, another researcher I talked to who is working to research and study the transplantation of uh, Elkhorn coral down in Dry Tortugas National Park. Yeah, that um, was a fascinating piece. Yeah, because the coral down there is really suffering. And her, she and her team are having great success with uh, planting coral and seeing how it grows and transplanting it into the park and uh, watching how it develops. And it's, it's really exciting to sort of talk to people that are involved in these stories that are going to impact all of us as we enjoy the parks. But on a day-to-day basis, we don't really know what they're doing and what's going on exactly. Well, no, absolutely. And that, that kind of goes back to what I was saying about, you know, it, it's not just about investigative journalism. You know, there are so many wondrous stories that flow out of the parks, you know, stories involving archaeology, paleontology, biology, even sociology, climate change, um, corals, bald eagles, wildlife exploration, um, new caves, um, new extensions to existing caves. And they're, they're also incredible. And, um, you know, we try and cover that too, because, uh, 
it is such an incredible national park system across the country and um, a lot of wonderful stories to tell. You know, one one thing, Lynn. One thing I'd, I'd be remiss, and I and I I'm, I'm not very good at asking for money, but the the fact of the matter is, the Traveler is a nonprofit 501c3 media organization. We couldn't survive without the support of our readers and listeners, and and companies and organizations that share our passion for the national parks and see value in this type of journalism. And um, you know, I'm I'm like I said, I'm not good at holding my hat in my hand and asking for money, but it's really important that, that if people enjoy our content, that they support it with a, a donation because um, no, nothing is guaranteed, unfortunately. I'd, I'd hate to take uh, the traveler down if we ran out of money, but um, that, that's always in the back of my mind. Donations are so critical for the traveler's success, and a little bit goes a long way. And so we reach out and we ask people to support us if they like the work we're doing and we are able to keep going and providing excellent coverage of issues in the national parks and protected areas, great journalism, great podcasts, and just all the kinds of content and uh, information stories that you want to just keep you apprised of what's going on in the national parks and how you can be involved. So absolutely, you know, I, I don't, feel shy about asking for money because I know that it goes to such a good cause and the money is uh, so well spent. And if anybody is wondering to what causes those dollars go to, we're just embarking on a probably year-long series of stories on invasive species in the national parks, whether it's a Burmese python in Everglades National Park or uh, quagga mussels down at Glen Canyon in uh, Lake Powell. I think that's going to be an eye-opening series and and really um, raise concern over what is happening to some of our iconic national parks. Um, Another series that we're starting out on is um, how the long-running drought in the Southwest has impacted national parks in the Southwest, places like Grand Canyon, Saguaro National Park, um, Mojave National Preserve, you know, these are important stories that, that deserve attention and, and more than just a one-off, if you will. Um, I, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of stories to be told in terms of how the drought is impacting the cultural resources, the wildlife, even visitation, um, economics. It's incredible um, some of the information we're coming up on that we're going to be sharing with our readers and listeners in the months ahead. So when a listener or a reader donates to the traveler, they get a little something that they can be proud of, right? Well, they can. Um, we've got some some great traveler gear, as I call it. Um, we just came out with uh, the second edition of uh, National Parks Traveler ball caps, and I, I really like it because it's a dark green, kind of like the dark green on our website, um, with, with our brightly colored logo against that. And um, we also have... Uh, I think it's the third edition now of, of water bottles with a beautiful photograph of Grand Prismatic Spring up in Yellowstone by Rebecca Latson, who is our contributing photographer. Readers love her her photo columns and, and her photography. And we've taken that Grand Prismatic picture and, and just wrapped a, a 20-ounce water bottle as well as a 20-ounce tumbler. And um, I like the tumbler. It's just kind of like, I don't know, it's, it, it's uh, a wonderful tumbler that you can fill either with coffee or your favorite adult beverage at the end of the day in the parks. And um, for readers who, uh, readers or listeners who sign up for uh, 
a $15 per month recurring donation or a one-time $50 donation, um, we'll be happy to send them either a hat or a water bottle or a tumbler. Yeah, when you were putting this program together and you told me that uh, these water bottles were pretty nice and I received mine, I'm like, wow, this really is. This is the best water bottle I've ever had. It's amazing. Well, the, the amazing thing about it is it's insulated. It's double wall insulated. And the, the question that we keep wondering, wondering about is, is how does the water bottle know if it's supposed to insulate for warmth or for cold? <laughs> <laughs> well, we... It's nice to be able to get a water bottle or a tumbler or a cap, but we hope the motivation isn't, you know, these items. We hope the motivation is that you love uh, the continuous coverage that the traveler provides, you know, the written content, the audio podcasts, and, you know, that you are getting some value out of uh, exposing yourself to this information. And we, we really think that's the benefit. And the, the caps and the water bottles are just icing on the cake. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Lynn, thanks for visiting today. I, I think it's time to uh, re- return to what we do and uh, generate some new content so uh, um, we can continue to expand and broaden our coverage of the national parks. Yeah, there's so much out there to see, to do, to learn. And, uh, you know, it's funny because a lot of times people will ask me, well, how many national parks have you have you been to? And I'm like, well, you know, and it's really hard to count when you talk about, you know, national parks, national seashores, historical sites, you know, scenic trails. And I always tell people, you know, if you you sat down, I bet you've been to more than you've realized. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I don't count. I don't keep count. (laughs) (laughs) It was great talking to you, Kurt. And it's always so exciting to see what's coming down the pike. Well, thanks so much, Lynn. Um, summer's here, almost here. COVID is waning. I think we all deserve a chance to get out into the parks and enjoy them. Absolutely. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. I can't emphasize how important your support of National Parks Traveler is. Journalism these days is in a very precarious position with outlets going out of business and mergers leading to greatly diminished newsrooms. Your support of our 501c3 nonprofit news organization enables us to bring you these weekly podcasts and bring fresh content to our flagship website every day of the week. In the weeks and months ahead, we'll be bringing you articles and podcasts on the state of mountain lines in and around Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area in California, on the condition and status of national scenic hiking trails, on the impacts a development proposed just beyond the South Rim of Grand Canyon National Park could have on that park. We'll take a look at how the ongoing drought in the Southwest is impacting national parks there, and we're working on a series on how invasive species are impacting parks across the country. With your financial support, we can continue to build on these efforts. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world 
and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.